This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South community access radio station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Call Kerry Sunderland Toko Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titorihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of CNF Legal in Whakatū Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners. It will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545-808. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Death Walker's Guide to Life. I'm really grateful you're here with me. We're all walking towards our own death. Well, not everybody. Some people are trying to run backwards. It's also pretty likely that at some stage you will be called to walk beside someone you love who is dying. And you might even want to run backwards from that too. Yep, while death is the natural and sacred end of life, the only event guaranteed to impact on everybody, many people still find it incredibly difficult to talk about, especially with the people they love most in the world. I know because I was one of those people, trying to run backwards, unable to talk about death. Let me paint you the picture. When I was in my late 30s, my partner Steve was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Bam! What a shock it was for us and everyone who knew him. He was, after all, a very successful and highly respected traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. He had healed so many other people, it didn't occur to me that he wouldn't be able to heal himself. When he died only 18 months later, I was confronted with a very rude awakening. There's a fine line between hope and denial. It took me years to learn to live with my grief and come to terms with the very long list of mistakes I'd made. But when I did, I made it my mission to improve my own death literacy and to support others to do the same. So running backwards doesn't work. Trust me. In my opinion, my own humble opinion, talking about death can really help you live life more fully. It doesn't have to be solemn or morbid, although we might have to ditch a few pieties. So what is a death walker? First and foremost, a death walker is someone who walks the journey towards their own death as openly, courageously and as best they can. A death walker is also available to walk with someone else on their journey towards death, to walk with those who are supporting others who are dying and to walk with those who are grieving, offering guidance and care to inform and empower them. 
I'd particularly like to acknowledge all my fellow Death Walkers out there who might be listening. And over time, I hope to feature every one of you on the show. This work really is a team effort. On today's show, though, I'll be speaking with Zenith Virago, who coined the term Death Walker, founded the Natural Death Care Centre in Australia, and has run Death Walker training around the world. But since this is show number one, in season number one, I'd first like to tell you a little bit more about the shape of the program. In each show, I will feature one substantial korero interview or conversation with someone about their experience of thinking and talking about death. This will be bookended by two shorter segments, Death in Print, which will be like a review of a book or an article that deals with death and dying in some way, and at the other end, Death on Screen, a review of a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. My particular interest is in death literacy, both improving my own death literacy and supporting others to do the same. I'm particularly interested in helping people learn how to talk about death when they're still well and supporting people to have open, courageous conversations with their loved ones. The concept of death literacy has fascinated me ever since I attended, for the first time after Steve's death, the Day of the Dead ceremony, which the Natural Death Care Centre hosts annually near Byron Bay. It wasn't simply my love of reading and writing and the fact that I'd worked as a professional communicator all of my adult life that drew me towards death literacy as a concept, but more because of my lived experience of how I felt so ill-equipped to speak of death during Steve's illness and dying. Being a professional communicator didn't help at all when the going got tough, just saying. And even after Steve's death, I could not bring myself to say that he died for at least a year and used all sorts of euphemisms instead. I do believe, my personal beliefs, is that he might have passed over to another realm, but he certainly wasn't lost. I could find him in my heart and often in my dreams whenever I wanted. And even today, he is an essential part of the fabric of my life. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with Natural Death Care Centre founder Zenith Virago about the origins of the term Death Walker and about her life's work. But before I do that, here's the first bookend, Death in Print. In this segment in each show, I'll talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. Since my day job entails curating Puka Puka Talks, the Nelson Arts Festival's Readers and Writers Program, I'm fortunate to have some good contacts in the Australasian publishing industry and will often focus on new releases. But I'll also talk about some of my older faves. Today, though, I want to talk about a new book called Let's Talk About the Hard Things, which just arrived in my postbox on Monday. While I'm here, I want to give a shout out to its Californian-based author, Anna Sale, who is also the creator and host of the podcast series Death, Sex and Money. The book features chapters on talking about death, sex. First up is death, and I think this is the first book I've read that explicitly discusses the pandemic and provides a fascinating insight into what it's been like in the US. I just want to read this little excerpt. In some ways, the COVID-19 pandemic shattered the illusion that doctors are always at the ready to try to stave off the end. As the global health community scrambled to understand the virus, life-saving equipment was rationed, visitors were prohibited, and final goodbyes were said over FaceTime. There was no escaping the fact of our physical vulnerability and mortality, and those of our loved ones. 
We will never know just how many people with coronavirus died in the United States, as some people with chronic illnesses and respiratory disease distress simply opted to stay home, untested, to give themselves more control over where they died and who was with them in their final moments. And I think reading that just sort of really hit home for me how um, what we see in the TV news in the 30 seconds or the couple of minutes on, on the TV news or even discussed on show, social media doesn't really go to the heart of what happens in, in situations like this. And um, Anna Sale's book does just that. She relates in all sorts of conversations um, with people that she's had on her podcast and she looks at questions around whose deaths are visible and those who aren't. Um, she has a fascinating interview in the book with Alice from Black Lives Matter. She considers how getting old doesn't necessarily prepare you for death. Her former neighbour Anne is in her 80s and is kind of quite shocked to think that she, she might be going to die. And um, interestingly, also, she mentions um, an Australian, uh, the late Australian writer, Corey Taylor, who wrote a book called Dying a Memoir. Coming very soon is my interview with Zenith Virago, the founder of the Natural Death Care Centre in Australia. But before that, I want to tell you a little bit about the song you heard in, at the opening of this show. The track is called Stumble, and it was co-written and performed by two of my dearest friends, Rob and Anna. We first met at a festival um, just after I moved to New Zealand, which was at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Rob's partner, Helen, died of cancer, and a little while later, he met Anna. My husband, Steve, had died of cancer a few years earlier, and then I'd met my new partner, David. So the four of us had a lot in common. As well as being inspired by Rob's memories of Helen and my memories of Steve, Stumble is a tribute to some of our other friends, and their loved ones who have died. Our friend Felicity's brother Mark, and our friend from the festival community, Gabriella. So this is Stumble. Just a stumble along the way, I knew you were saying goodbye You asked me to let go of you To cut that thread to let you die You packed your bags but you took no clothes And left me here alone called your name but it could not go This time your bird had flown Flown away And all those years you were my one Your life was mine to share into the fringe of fear I run Ring of hurted glass I, I let, let you go, go, I let you go I let you leave I let you go, I let you go So I can grieve 
miss you every day, you know. Beyond the sea, your sun has set. I hear you whisper that you're near. Butterfly breezes catch my breath. And now I wonder who I am. Without you by my side, a shadow in my night so dark leaves me wondering why you died and where you fly. In all those years, you were my one. Your life was mine to share. Into the fringe of fear, I run. The ring of hurted glass. I let you go. I let you go. I let you leave. I let you go. I let you go. So I can grieve. Today's show, I'm delighted to welcome Zenith Virago, founder of the Natural Death Care Centre in Australia, the Byron Shire Day of the Dead, and the Death Walker Training Program, which she has now delivered all over Australia, the USA, Europe, and here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In 2016, I brought Zenith to the top of the South Island to conduct the inaugural New Zealand Death Walker Training Program here in Titoihu just down the road from the Fresh FM Motueka studio at Riverside Community Centre. Zenith returned again in 2019 to run it, and the COVID gods willing will be back in Aotearoa in 2022. Kia ora, Zenith. Kia ora. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Earlier in the show, I explained a little bit about what a death walker is, but I'd like to start by asking you about the origins of the term and where, where you came up with the idea to kind of coin this phrase, death walker. Can you tell me a bit about that? So for many years, I was just doing the work. I was just working with people who were dying or with their dead bodies or with their families uh, after a sudden or expected death. And for many years, that was fine. And then I thought, well, oh, I really need a term. And then I thought, well, what am I doing? I'm walking with those people in their journeys. I'm accompanying them 
in their sorrow and their loss. And so I decided that the term death walker meant that it will cover the whole process because I've never really warmed to the title death doula to describe the work that I do because I feel that it's much more comprehensive than doula work. It's much more inclusive and it continues on after death. And indeed, my understanding too is that it can even start before someone is, I mean, we, we're all walking towards our death, but before someone's actively dying or in that dying process, which I think the death doula tends to focus more around that period of time, doesn't it? Mm. And when I started, in, you know, 25, 30 years ago, the word doula was not in common usage at all. It was more midwife and there were home birth midwives. But I just never felt that that was appropriate for me or for the work that I was doing. And so, and it, it is what you're saying, we're all walking towards our own death the very best way we can. And then you've got, of course, Ramdas who says we're all just walking each other home. And so I was lucky enough to teach with Ramdas in Hawaii a couple of years ago. And yeah, I really got that transmission from him. Mm. And so it only affirmed what I sort of had already learned for myself. So that was great. And how was it when you first coined the phrase death walker or the term? It's just one word, isn't it, really? How was it received initially? Did people get it or...? Yeah, people did get it because I was also very established in this community and people had been calling me. I had been a resource here for many years, probably at least 15 at that stage. And they they also, some people like it because it's edgy and some people don't like it. And that's all fine. It's a bit like everything. It's like, you know, as a queer person, as a lesbian, as a dyke, I can use whatever term I like and the same for everyone else as long as they come with the respect. And so it's just about finding a term that feels right for you. And when I, when I found that word in my own, from my own making, I was just like, oh, yeah, that feels really good for me. Mm. And I love it too. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and people will either take it on or they won't. But I did notice recently that uh, an American person who I can't remember who it was, who's qu- you know quite well known in that death worker world, had used it as a general term for anybody who worked with the dying. And I was just like, oh, great! You know, there you are. You you're just contributing to our community as another option for people to see what their work is about. Yeah. But you, the, whenever you search Death Walker on Google, I tested this just this morning, um, your work and the Natural Death Care Centre website comes up on the first page, so that's that's good too. It's obviously still right. a term that really belongs in, in, in the Byron Shire and, and with, with your, um, your field of uh, expertise. Yeah, I mean, and some people tried to put me off it because apparently before that, when you Googled it, uh, you got some horror movie. Oh, that's the still 70s, there too, but it's but, only one. <laughs> but that's, you know, there you are. It's just about evolving of terms and reclaiming language, reclaiming that care for our dying, for our dead and for the bereaved. And really it is just, it's not anything new. It's just a return to how it always was 
before the funeral industry, before the medicalization mm -hmm. of death. And it, it, it's just really a return to community-led, family-led death care yeah. and after-death care. Yeah, and all about empowering people to return mm -hmm. to that. All about. Yeah. yeah, and appreciating that everyone has the inherent capacity to do death well. And, of course, you know, in Aotearoa, uh, you know, Māori have always done death well. You know, they, there's a very simple and uh, a comprehensive tradition that's unbroken and serves a really great purpose and really allows people to go there fully. And what we've brought is just um, a contemporary approach to that very traditional approach and the same for the Irish and in lots of indigenous unbroken cultures. So we're just trying to say to people, hey, this is the way you can do it. Look what everyone else is doing. And once you know what your options are, then you can consider them and make decisions that are right for you. And that's really what it's about. It's about empowering families, supporting them with guidance or with practical support to care for their own dead mm. and to die as well as they can, which I know because after 25 years, it's very easy to see, especially in our community, that that participation, that empowerment, that awareness leads to a healthier bereavement. Mm. And so once we've said goodbye to that physical body and we are left to live on with that loss in our lives, that loss is easier to bear when people have participated and have been in control of their person and their process, whatever that looks like for them. Yes, something I learnt from experience, mm. possibly by doing <laughs> some of the things the wrong way, yeah. And I certainly noticed when I moved to uh, Aotearoa from from Byron, which was almost nine years ago, would you believe, that wow. yeah, I really felt that everybody was quite a lot further along the path <laughs> in terms of death walking here than, than not so much in Byron, but definitely in other places in Australia and Melbourne where I was born and, and grew up for sure. So the, yeah. the Natural Death Care Centre was founded in 2006 and the first day of the dead, I believe, was in 2007. When did it occur to you that death walking was something you could train others to do? So when when did the death walker training program, because I know the first training was in 2014, so I'm just interested in when you thought, well, maybe how can I share this with other people, I guess, was probably the moment. Yeah, I suppose for the for 10 years before that, I had also, I'd always taught. So it was always my dream that there would be someone like me in each community, that someone would hold that death knowledge for their people, whether that was geographic, uh, you know, spiritual, sexual, whatever their community was, that someone would hold that body of knowledge and be able to assist their own. And so I'd always taught and I started with uh, small afternoon sessions and then I taught here through the community college. I taught a seven-week course one, one morning a week and then what happened was I was I got the opportunity to go away traveling and I decided I wasn't sure how long I would be away. So I put on a weekend workshop before I went twofold. One, to share that knowledge in case I died while I was away and also to raise some money for me to go on that. It was going around the world on a trip. 
And it was so popular that when I got back, I sort of formalized it a bit. And then I could see that there were, you could either do it over a long period of time or as a crash course. And then after a while, uh, a small philanthropic foundation rang me out of the blue and said, uh, we really love your work, what we've seen on the web. We'd like to financially support you in some way. So I went to meet them and we decided that the best thing to do was to really formalize that training into as short amount of time as possible. So it's three days. It could easily go for five, especially the longer I continue and the more experience I have to share with people. But three days, it, you know, it has to do because most people can't give up more than that. And it's just been going really well. So that this year, I think, was the eighth year of delivering that training. And in the last 18 months due to COVID, actually last weekend, this weekend just gone, which was the beginning of September, is the first training that I've had to cancel. All the others have come off. And that's about 18 in the last 18 months. So I feel very fortunate that I was lucky enough to be able to do that and hopefully continue the ones that are planned for the rest of the year. And it just, I just really could see the benefit of sharing a compact and very uh, resourceful body of work for people because really everyone has that inherent capacity. They have their own courage and, you know, supported by their own people it, that really makes a wave for people to ride in order to help others. So it's a sort of reciprocal co-creation in a way of, of being able to support the community in order for them to do it themselves. Mm. And it, it's just a beautiful thing to watch that working, you know, and contribute towards people's already existing capacity. Yeah, and that's certainly the case with... Uh, the first training program here um, in 20, uh, 2016 when I know all of the people that have um, were involved in that have gone out and gone forth and um, done some amazing mm. things and it's my wish that um, this season I'll, of, of the show I'll have um, everybody on to talk about what they're doing as well and uh, catch up oh, with people. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so that's wonderful. So you're coming up to, I think you said, uh, almost 30 years' experience as, as a death walker now and you've somehow, though, managed to distill all of that knowledge, well, not all of it, but the key things into an 11-minute TED Talk recently, which I highly <laughs> re highly recommend to our listeners. So you can go and find it online. Um, yeah. Yeah. How was that experience? <laughs> I have to say it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done because generally I'm speaking to people. So I'm responding to whoever's in the room, that, that particular group of people who come for that particular training or I'm speaking in public. But because I'd committed to train in Perth, I couldn't be there for the actual event. And so I had to pre-record it without an audience, with just a few friends who came along to support me. But I had to deliver it eye to eye to the camera, not to an auditorium of people. And I found that very challenging. Mm. So, uh, for people that know me, I think, who watch that TED Talk, they will see that I'm not my normal relaxed, uh, you know, groovy, in the groove sort of uh, delivery. It's 
it's much more focused. And it was, in fact, about uh, 15 minutes, but it got edited down to 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 make it deliverable. And, you know, it's the choice between not doing a TED Talk or making the most out of what you had. And so I'm very glad that I've done it because I think it's very full of useful information and things to consider for people. But, um, yeah, I have to say it wasn't one of my most enjoyable moments. But it really allowed me, I don't get stressed out. Like once you're working with life and death, you know, nothing is really a big deal except for something like that and because of the potential that that holds mm. to share that work. And when I finished it, I drove to the beach and I did this enormous swim, which you will know from what it goes to the pass, way out deep alone, and, because I just had so much energy released. And it's a similar situation often for people when they've been traveling that journey, uh, right. caring for someone, you know, dealing with the burial cremation, creating the ceremony, you know, connecting with all their family and far now. And then they are done and they're satisfied and it's the best it could have been. And in that comes this incredible uh, releasing of a large amount of energy that people have kept to maintain that experience going. And then it's sort of, it can either have a big collapse and not do anything for a couple of days or engage fully in something else with this incredible amount of energy. So it's very different for each person and for each set of circumstances. Hmm. I just like you say that um, every death is an um, equation. I guess every death is unique in, in a way because the equation is always going to be unique to the people involved in, hmm. in that situation. I'd just like to dig deeper with you about a couple of the insights that you had in that, that you shared in that TED Talk. And one, I think you'll, you'll probably guess what's coming. Um, one was sort of you mentioned it both in, with regards to your first insight, which was about being willing to be there to show up, to let go of trying to find meaning and to let go of hope. And then again later um, with the sixth one, which was to be with what is, not what if or if only. And so I want to... Um, you mentioned hope twice in in the TED talk, and I and I remember you saying, talking about hope in one of the trainings I did with you in the past. And I'm fascinated with this idea because it's been my personal experience that hope uh, was overrated, and that actually worse than that, hope. You know, the, I just found there was yeah. a very fine line between hope and denial. So, tell me That's, a little bit more yeah. about what you've learned about the role hope plays and the difficulties of it. Yeah, I think what I've started to see, the first thing I saw was when I was working with people who were in bed dying or at the kitchen table dying, was that they were hoping for a miracle. And that is nearly the case for almost everyone. And that's fine, that everyone's entitled to hope for what they want. But stepping back from that, there was this hope amongst the people that things would be different to what they are. So I'm not a healer. I'm not a medical person. I only work with death. So by the time people are inviting me in to sit with their family, they're really looking towards someone's end of life, someone's death, and the process beyond that. But 
there was this sort of dance that people did where it's sort of like we want to plan ahead but so it's like one step forward two steps back but we're hoping that the treatment will work or that everything will be okay or that we'll have a miracle and you know variations on that theme and that is very tiring for people to do that backwards and forwards dance and i found often sitting at the kitchen table with people one of the services that i could serve to them very quickly was to dissolve that unreasonable hope that hope that it was going to be different and the outcome would be different from clearly what it was but also i brought a familiarity to that situation because i'd sat with so many people at their bedsides or at the kitchen table and so it became very clear to me quite quickly that those people were on a trajectory to die that was the only place they were going and so i started to re- i've always been a very trusting person and the definition of hope someone said to me was wanting things to be different to what they are a bit like suffering as opposed to pain and so quite quickly i thought i'm just hope is not going to be helpful for me to uh water for those people so i generally water what i want to grow and i don't put kindling on what i don't want to keep burning and the hope that it would be some other way uh i didn't put kindling on that so i just came either neutral or with the outcome that i could see was going to be how it was and people started to move with me because it's a bit like when someone's holding your hand when someone's guiding you in an unknown experience you trust that person has your best interests at heart and is going to take you on the best route possible whatever that might look like and so i just really without saying trust me i'm your local death walker um i would just i would proceed with the trust and with that i fell in love with the mystery mm. that things are as they are and as you know personally and as many people listening will know that life doesn't always give you what you want it doesn't sometimes give you that happy ending or the outcome that you want for that person but it is what it is and the sooner people can get with that program and get with that understanding the more rewarding and gentle that experience can be and people's resistance to what is and their desire or energy that you put into what if if only it was this or if only we do that or if only we try this but it it becomes very exhausting and actually distracting and it the limited amount of time that people have together or have for themselves instead of putting that in energy into dying well or accompanying that person in the experience that they're in and you know holding hands and being courageous to go there together and ha- and having a you know a better outcome for them the the and that became part of my role really to to escort people from that over that difficult bridge 
into that transition into accepting what is and not missing that moment and and being in it as fully as was possible for them so that they didn't miss that precious time that they had on offer to them. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I believe very much that it's a key to being being in the moment and being present with, with your loved one at, at that time too. Yeah. And being present to life all the time. Mm. And that, so because I was able to be present to death, it's really taught me how to be fully present in life. So whatever comes, you can just embrace and deal with and not want it to be any different. Obviously, you can move for change and you have a choice in where you go with it. But I have found that the learning from death has really enhanced my life every day without mm-hmm. fail. I'm in a, situ- a small situation, a big situation, that the more present I am to that, the easier that situation becomes. That has also been my experience in the last Great. Um, 11 years. Um, I think it was your fourth insight. You, you were talking about... Um, the common experience from all of the people that you've worked with is that um, even though we it's a mystery and we don't really know, but that many, 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 many people, if not everybody, reports um, something leaving the body at, at the, just after death. Yeah, well, I think that most before that, if you speak to someone who's dying and you only get to ask them one question, I have found that because they only have energy for that amount, for one answer, is to ask them what they think will happen when they die. And invariably, they will say that they believe something will leave the body. Occasionally, people believe the body is organic and that it will just die and that will be the end of it. But most people who are dying, believe that something spirit soul essence consciousness being whatever you want to call it something will leave the body that is them so they know they're not their body because the body's going to die but they feel in some way they're going to live on and that is also the most commonly held belief from people who are accompanying someone they love in that dying journey and they may not have the same belief. Some people believe you'll become part of everything. Some people believe that you're being reincarnated, whatever. The belief, the the um, the concept of the belief may be different, but the belief that something leaves the body is very similar. Mm. And so, and that belief brings us comfort. It brings us comfort as those that live on. And it brings us comfort as someone who is dying that that, you know, when their body dies, that's not the end. Unless, of course, that's what they want to believe. And so that became very clear. And so by asking that question in the moment, the answer is always interesting. And also by being able to share the answer to that question at the ceremony Mm. later, when that person has died, it can also bring comfort to those who were worried about that person. But it also brings a respect for everybody's own beliefs, whatever they might be, because often you're talking to, you know, 100, 200 people. 
So you have to be respectful to everybody's belief, but you can share that this is what that person believed about what would happen when they die. And generally, that belief brings comfort. Mm-hmm. And I understand, um, I mean, I know you sh- you've shared this a few times um, in the Death Walker trainings and elsewhere, but I think you also mentioned it in the TED Talk, yes, you do, about your first experience when your friend dies, which set you on this path mm-hmm. as a Death Walker, and how you had that experience of, of something happening and it was quite palpable for you, I believe. And you, and you described it in the TED Talk as, as something like a vapour, which I really resonated with because when I was with Steve, my first husband, when he died, I really felt like actually I was in in held almost like in a bubble of, of nanoparticles. That's what it felt like for me, mm. all around me, surrounding me. And it was just, you know, the dissolution of anything with any edges or or shapes so but I was fascinated and so far that's been my one and only experience of it and I was fascinated with the fact that you said you've only experienced that once too and I just was very curious if you had any ideas about why you've been with so many people when when they've died but you've had that experience only that first time well I'm not always there when people die okay. actually because my you're empowering my, the, the friends the that's family. right and yeah. I don't need to be there for yeah. that because mm. by the time the family get there they are fully able and feel confident enough to be there without someone else having to support them sure. and uh, and that's really what I'm working towards but the other thing I know about my life I've lived a long time I'm 64 and I've lived a, you know a very uh, experiential life is that life often offers me things once mm. and that's another reason to be very present because if life is only going to offer it to you once then you need to not miss it mm. and I when I looked when I came to that realization probably in my 50s I suppose I looked back on my life and I could see that it was full of incredible experiences that were once only. And some I might, I'd missed because I hadn't been able to pay attention properly. But once I had that experience uh, with Sylvia's body, and in fact, even though I was present to it at the moment, as we walked out and I got swept up in the organising of all the things to do with doing it ourselves as a group of family and friends, I forgot about that experience. And it was only then I went off to India and met the Dalai Lama, had an amazing experience with him. And I came back after three months and I was reminded something happened and I remembered that I'd had that experience. So it wasn't sort of omnipresent. I wasn't, it wasn't uppermost in my awareness all the time. I was just like, oh my God, I remember now, this is what happened to me with her body. So, and not like a repressed memory, but just overridden by so many other great experiences so quickly. But I think also when you do experience the loss of someone that you really love, someone and you are hands-on, and you are witnessing, you are diving into the profound, into the meaning of life even, uh, for yourself with that person's body and their journey, 
um, you know, it can be one incredible experience after another, one new experience after another. And so you really need to take time when that process is complete to just appreciate and talk about what has happened and what, you know, gifts you received during that time, as well as the heartbreak and the sorrow and the missing of that person. But, you know, it, it, it offers us so much and people often miss it because they're too caught in, their, in the depth of their emotions because they are unknown and unfamiliar emotions. And even for me recently, one of my uh, dearest, dearest friends died. She killed herself. And I felt, even after so 25 years on that cold face of death with everyone, I felt emotions and feelings and responses that I have never felt because in that equation of the way she died and my relationship to her and how much I cared for her, it generated a whole new set of responses and um, it was terrible and beautiful. But I was very glad that I had everything I knew to support me in that and you know, the more people explore, the, the deeper people are able to go, the more support you are for yourself and then for others. And the more you can sustain yourself in those challenging and unfamiliar experiences. Mm. Mm. Very true. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I've been to, have had the privilege of being able to go to a, a number of the Day of the Dead ceremonies in Byron Bay. And um, I know you have had one planned. I don't know where it is, where, what it, where it's still going ahead because of COVID, but you're not in lockdown anymore in regional Northern Rivers, which is lucky for you. Mm. Um, planned um, for the 7th of November. And I, and I noticed on the, in, um, the Natural Death Care Centre website, it says, um, a good ceremony can save 12 months of counselling. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I love that. Tell me more about that. <laughs> well, I, because I would say, you know, it's a very well-known saying that prevention is better than cure. So with that as a sort of simple premise, the more that you are involved, the more present you are to those situations, even if they're incredibly distressing or challenging, uh, the more you understand how you work and why you're feeling like that. And the baseline is most of those feelings are love transformed. And it looks, it's love at the core, but it manifests as something very different, like pain, despair, heartbreak, a range of things like that. Or just a gentle missing or a regret or an acceptance or that someone was inspiring or gratitude. It can look like a whole lot of things, a whole spectrum. But with that, um, the the more you participate, then the less regret you have. Because a lot of people say to me, oh, God, I really wished I'd known that when my mum died you know, a few years ago. Because then they look back and they can feel how satisfying it was or it wasn't. And the less you participate, generally the less satisfying it will be. 
because you're not making it yours. And sometimes people are fortunate that the funeral director will guide them through and will assist them and accompany them. And fantastic. There are lots of great people working in that industry in that role. And But what a lot of people experience is um, just like a conveyor belt process where they go in, they choose the coffin, you know, they... They turn up three days later, a member of the clergy does a ceremony that might be a prescribed ceremony that doesn't actually really cater to the life and the relationships of the people who are there. And when you walk away, often you can feel worse than you did when you came because, you know, I I made a list of purposes that the ceremony could serve and I got up to about 35 and I stopped because I was sort of exhausted. But but so if you get a good ceremony and it covers at least two-thirds of those, the chances that you'll feel satisfied that the person is honoured and your relationship and your emotions have been honoured uh, are likely. But if it only serves the, the purpose of, you know, sending that person off to their cremation or burial, and acknowledging a god and uh you know you know if it's not satisfactory it will leave you with regret and unsatisfied feelings whereas a good ceremony whatever that looks like for each family and each person when you look back well in the moment you feel satisfied and full but then when you look back you don't have any regrets of course, you, you would prefer that they didn't die sometimes. But when you look back at it, you feel that you were in charge of it from the death on. And that can be very comforting for people. And so often people don't need to go into a deep grief. They don't need to go into therapy for that because there's there's nothing to be sorted apart from feeling the sadness and missing and whatever other emotions they are, but they're, they're normal emotions and they're healthy to feel because they teach you about love, they teach you about life, they teach you about death, they teach you about what's precious or they may be an example of what not to do, of how you don't want to live your life like that person did or you want to be kinder or you want to change your life so that you can live it more fully and be of more benefit to others, whatever. So that can be really beneficial rather than something really terrible. And that's why I'm saying that if you get the ceremony right, you may not be able to control the circumstances of the death, but you have a lot of control. You have total control over what you want to happen after that. And that will set you up for a healthy, bearable beautiful bereavement Mm. and a growth that you might never thought of possible and so for example for you Kerry you know when you think about Steve's death and look at how much you've learned from that and how that's propelled you into you know living in another country falling in love at a deeper level you know being open to that even though you know your love was for Steve was so immense and, um, you know, and then your writing, your contribution to community, all of those things have grown from that experience of being with Steve while he was dying 
and his death and the ceremony that went with that and being open to a deeper knowledge of yourself but also of life and others. Beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. So true. Every word you said is, um, yeah, very, very true. I have a thousand more questions for you and I could talk to you for days and days and days but I'm just going to ask you one more and it's kind of a fun one to finish. Um, I had this idea that I'm going to ask all of my guests on this show to tell me one of the songs that they would like played at their funeral or wake and um, I'm then going to put together a playlist um, of those songs so that people can enjoy them and, and find out about them. So do you know of one song that you would, I mean there's probably more than one, but have you got one song that you would could think of that you'd love to have played it changes for me and i'm not i'm not actually a great person to pick music because i'm just very good with what i like at the moment but very recently i heard a track called celebrations by sally oldfield the brother oh the sorry the sister of mike oldfield and tubular bells and it's very hippie and it's very uh it's a very probably 80s song, but I listened to it. It crossed my path, and it was very much a part of uh, a love story that I was having when I had my son Tane uh, with his father. And it encompassed such a lot of life. It encompassed birth. It encompassed love. And I listened to the words, and it's um, it's – you know, it's hard. You'll find it, I'm sure, if you look for it. But uh, it's it's called Celebration, and I just thought, oh, that's a perfect song. It's so completely daggy because <laughs> it's, you know, but it's been very much my experience of living on the North Coast, you know, more connected to nature, you know, with a, let's say, an alternative community, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so um, other people will pick more fabulous, stylish uh, meaningful songs but for me I I just thought yeah I really love that because and Tane my son will be there and I've explained to him that this was part of his creation uh, love affair and I feel that it's beautiful that it will have all of that in that one song and probably only he I'll be dead but he will know that and that will contribute to his ability to uh to be joyful in that moment yeah and remember the conversation you had with him about that song yeah 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 and his dad of course is already dead so when I die you know he'll be uh parentless but he's a parent himself so that cycle continues on Mm. yeah Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Zenith. I really, it's been lovely to connect with you again. And fingers fingers crossed um, we'll see you here next year and or you'll see me back there soon. Yeah. And really, you know, wishing everybody well who's listening and, you know, planting seeds or affirming what you already know. Like a lot of people will be listening and they'll be nodding and thinking, yeah, that's, you know, I know that. I know that inherently. Or for others, it will be waking something up. And so really thank you for that opportunity to be able to do that. Thank you. Aroha nui. Thank you. (laughs) And to you. This is Death Walker's Guide to Life, and you've been listening to a conversation with Zenith Virago, the founder of the Natural Death Care Centre in Australia, and me, 
the show host and producer, Kerry Sunderland. We're coming up to the end of the show now, but I just want to finish with our bookend, which is Death on Screen. In coming episodes, I'm going to review movies and TV series, but in this show, I wanted to talk about the power and the perils of social media. So it's about a post um, that was based on a video produced by Sarah Kerr, who is a death doula, um, and someone had typed up, transcribed basically what she'd said in the video and shared it on the Facebook page, Always With Love. In only three days, that post attracted 5 million views, 142,000 shares and 21,000 comments, which prompted the page owner to post a video pleading for only those with an authentic and genuine interest in death work to remain. Interestingly, at the same time, Sarah Kerr's page had about 13,000 likes and about 14,000 followers. Although the video that she originally shared, um, which had those words in it that went viral, um, has been viewed many, many times. Last time I looked, the Always With Love post had 19 million views and had been shared 246,000 times and had attracted 41,000 comments. It is a beautiful post. I'll just share a few words of it with you. When someone dies, the first thing to do is nothing. Don't run out and call the nurse. Don't pick up the phone. Take a deep breath and be present to the magnitude of the moment. There's a grace to being at the bedside of someone you love as they make their transition out of this world. At the moment they take their last breath, there's an incredible sacredness in the space. The veil between the worlds opens. And if you were listening to my interview with Zenith Virago earlier in the program, you would have heard us talking about those moments that we've experienced in our lives. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. I'll also pop up on that website links to all of the um, posts and books and all the other information that we've covered in today's show. And once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 808 or visit their website cflegal.co.nz. Thank you so much for being with me today for the first episode of Deathwalker's Guide to Life and I look forward to connecting with you again for the next program. Fly away Fly away Fly away Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.